this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for March, 2022. I'm Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. For those who attended our first AMDA annual meeting in three years in Baltimore in March, I hope you all left there as energized and grateful as I did. And we just had our annual meeting of the JAMDA Editorial Advisory Board, so I want to thank all of our senior editors and really all the others who volunteer their time to make it such a well-respected and excellent journal for all their dedication and enthusiasm. So today, we'll be spotlighting articles from the March 2022 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. And we'll be speaking with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan, a family physician and geriatrician, is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill and co-director for the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at UNC, where she's an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Welcome, Drs. Brown and Sloan. Thank you, happy to be here. Thank you. So what are our topics gonna to be for today's podcast? Well. I'll be discussing COVID vaccination responses of nursing home residents, comparing them with responses of healthy adults. In addition, I'll be discussing two papers about applying a disease management protocol for heart failure to nursing home residents. And I'll be discussing a longitudinal study documenting how COVID-19 has been associated with declining mental health scores of health professionals and a trial of an electronic decision support tool for urinary tract infection diagnosis and management in nursing homes. All right, well, sounds like great stuff. So Dr. Sloan, I think we'll have you go first. What are you gonna lead off with? Well, it's a paper about the development and persistence of vaccine-related antibody titers in nursing home residents. We all know that nursing home residents as a group tend to have rather poor immunological systems and therefore can be expected to respond differently to vaccines than healthy adults. This article sheds light on the topic. It's from a large research team in Ireland. They evaluated 86 nursing home residents who, as part of a national study, had been receiving weekly COVID PCR tests and therefore for whom a prior history of COVID was relatively well documented. The study subjects were then assessed before five weeks after and six months after receiving the BNT162B2 vaccine, otherwise known as the Pfizer vaccine. Analyses looked at overall anti-spike antibody levels and risk factors for differences in antibody response. 
The 86 study subjects were pretty typical nursing home residents. Average age was 81, 40% had cognitive impairment, 76% met criteria for frailty. Just over half had evidence of a prior COVID infection, which was great because it's a convenient split for doing you know, statistical analyses. So five weeks after getting the Pfizer vaccine, all participants mounted a significant anti-spike antibody response, as we know that the vaccine was specifically against the spike protein. Now, this is good news. Everybody mounted a response. Interestingly, however, the average antibody titer achieved by persons with a previous infection was 35 times greater than that of persons without the previous infection. At six months, both groups had declined markedly. Among the previous infection group, the six-month antibody level had declined by 72%. Among the group with no previous infection, it had declined by 79%. Other than prior infection, only two other patient factors were independently associated with antibody response at five weeks and also at six months, patient age and frailty. And by far the main factor determining response was prior exposure to the antigen. I then looked at an article uh, that came out about seven, eight months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, they reported values in three age groups of healthy volunteers who got their first dose and hadn't been sick before. People 18 to 55, people 55 to 70, and greater than 70. And they documented that all three groups had responses. They all peaked around six weeks, which is an interesting point because you know, people say, I just got the shot and then I got COVID. Well, it takes six weeks to get your antibody levels up. But anyway, they all went up six weeks, they started going down and the drop-off rate was more rapid as age increased. So this JAMDA paper really just shows that this trend is amplified when applied to nursing home residents who as a group are older and more immunocompromised. So to put it all together, this study provides strong evidence for both the effectiveness of the anti-RNA vaccine in raising antibody levels and of the importance of multiple doses and boosters because of rapid drop-offs in antibody levels over time. Well, that's great. Uh, so it's, it does sound like uh, we're going to be needing uh, repeated boosters. So I'm just uh, thinking, you know, a 35-fold increase in average titers for people who had actual COVID infections uh, compared to those who just received the vaccine, that kind of stood out to me. And, uh, you know, I can envision patients and families saying, hey, natural immunity is going to be so much better than the vaccine. So just, you know, no thanks to the vaccine or no thanks to boosters. So, so what's the reply to that? Well, having COVID is not a trivial thing, especially for people who are unvaccinated. And we get the, mm -hmm. we get the reports from our hospital, you know, of how many deaths there have been and how many have been unvaccinated people. So it's a pretty risky way to get your immunity up. And sure, I mean, <laughs> we used to do that for chickenpox. Put the kids all together and have them get chicken pox and get their antibody levels up. Right. The weird thing to me is why do they decline so quickly? You know, I mean, we know there have been people who, who had COVID and then they get it again. So it's not like that immunity is that persistent. You know, whatever level is, it seems to go down to a level that people can get it again or they get the different variant. I don't know. It's this is unusual um, because mo usually you get three doses of a vaccine, you know, with childhood vaccines, stuff like that. It's years before you have to worry about it again. 
Right. Well, just one more way that COVID has been a, a completely different beast uh, from, mm -hmm. from what we're used to. But I guess, you know, as far as the question is, it really doesn't matter how high your titer gets. It's, uh, it's the fact that it's going to drop so fast, you're going to need to do something anyway. So uh, vaccines are the way to go on that. Mm -hmm. So um, let's go to you, Mallory, and talk about these issues of mental health and COVID, uh, which is obviously something many of us and the people we work with uh, have experienced firsthand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think as we see a decrease in the total number of cases of COVID-19, many of us may still be treating the ongoing mental health concerns that COVID and its impacts have caused, particularly on our patients um, that are older adults and that have been isolated. But in addition, our healthcare workforce. Um, I thought this article was really interesting and telling. Um, the, this cross-sectional survey study investigated the healthcare worker mental well-being in the fall of 2021 when a surge occurred in Singapore. It compared the well-being scores to a previously published cohort from 2020. Healthcare workers from four public hospitals and a primary healthcare system totaling uh, 1,475 healthcare workers were surveyed over a four-week duration in 2021, which coincided with a major surge compared to a similar period in 2020. Perhaps not surprising, significantly more healthcare workers met the primary outcomes of disengagement, exhaustion, and being at risk for anxiety and depression in 2021 than in 2020. Burnout levels were uniformly high. Healthcare workers' mental health has objectively worsened between 2020 and 2021 in the pandemic's second year. Avoiding prolonged shifts, adopting preventive mental health strategies, improving patient safety, and attention to healthcare workers and minority ethnicity from overseas and with pre-university education might help. So as we move out of a surge and maybe into a new era, we'll need to consider the information that this study highlights clearly um, as we must be prepared to avoid these notable mental health crises in the future and to support our colleagues and friends to ensure we're providing the best care for our patients. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's a lot. And, uh, you know, you look in the U.S. and you look at how many healthcare workers have fled the post-acute and long-term care setting. Uh, and you wonder how many of those uh, left because of uh, really mental health issues. So so uh, what specific or practical recommendations do you have uh, for those of us who work in the post-acute and long-term care space and our listeners on, on how we do uh, you know how we're mindful and how we try to avoid uh, uh, additional mental health stressors? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I had the the pleasure and the opportunity to participate in the AHRQ Echo um, COVID in nursing homes last year, and I was struck in the summer by some of the um, events and activities that nursing homes um, in our area were doing just to boost morale, whether that was uh, having a food truck come one day or um, celebrating with ice cream. I mean, those are certainly little things and don't improve our, our PHQ-9 scores necessarily, but just to pick me up here and there. I also think it's important that we create groups for support and we acknowledge the feelings and um, the, the loss and the grief that we've experienced throughout these two years. Um, 
it certainly hasn't gotten easier. Cortisol levels are all over the place and just acknowledging that and supporting one another and really acknowledging the strength of our teammates, I think can go a long way. Yeah, those are great, great recommendations. And also I I think just um, expressing our gratitude to the people that we work alongside, um, you know, also can, can go a long way. We are in this together and uh, absolutely. uh, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. So, um, okay, well, thanks for that. And now for our next topic, we're gonna to move away from COVID-19 to a major longstanding issue in post-acute long-term care, which is heart failure. And this is one of the, one of the first items that uh, uh, hospitals started getting deemed on when they had readmissions uh, back in, the, in 2012 or so. So always an important, uh, an important clinical uh, and regulatory type concern. So Dr. Sloan, this month's JAMDA includes two papers from the same study on a disease management protocol for heart failure in post-acute care. And what can we learn from this? You know, I believe that the um, people who did this study may have found some things they didn't really expect to find. So I'll use some detail, you know, to explain kind of what happened and what they found. You know, it was a cluster randomized trial of a heart failure disease management protocol among patients from hospitals to nursing homes. It involved 671 patients, 47 nursing homes, and 60 physician practices. Big study. The goal was to see if a nurse-led heart failure disease management program would reduce 30 and 60-day rehospitalizations, ED visits, and mortality. The program was super intensive, and it was carried out by a disease management nurse advocate who saw the patient in the hospital, visited the patient three times a week in the nursing home, gave the patient and family instructions on home care, and then followed up by phone or in person one week after discharge from the nursing home. So a particularly novel thing about this intervention, which I really liked, is that this one person spanned the hospital, the post-acute care setting, and the patient's home, helped deal with these handoffs. The nurse advocate's job was to gather data, presented to the attending physician and to instruct the attending physician, patient and family on self-management. And didn't write orders or anything like that. The decisions and initiation of orders were all left to the attending physicians. The nurse's job was really just to do this kind of um, uh, supportive role and data gathering role. So briefly, the components of the program included measurement of the ejection fraction in the hospital, assessment of heart failure signs and symptoms three times a week during this whole period, weighing three times a week, recommending to order the lowest sodium diet available in the facility. There were three medication adjustment protocols, you know, one for people with reduced ejection fracture, you know, ASR and stuff, we know beta blocker, a loop diuretic protocol for weight gain, ones we're, I think we're pretty familiar with, but these were all just prescribed blood pressure medication adjustment protocol regardless of ejection fraction. So the program also include five sessions between the nurse and the patient and family about self-management, you know, discharge recommendations for weight checks, medication adjustment, and diet at home. It also included making sure there was a follow-up appointment with the patient's primary physician within a week of discharge from the nursing home. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the nurse would follow up in person or phone seven days after discharge home from the skilled nursing facility. Because, as you know, the 60, 90 days often includes time at home. Mm -hmm. Well, as you can imagine, very few patients had everything done according to the desired protocol. Particularly unlikely to be followed were the frequency of weight checks, 
physicians actually ordering the recommended medication changes and the follow-up visit occurring seven days after discharge, you know, with the nurse actually following up. So what did they find? Well, the short answer is surprisingly not that much. The intervention group did a little better than the control group in the 30 and 60 day health outcome, but that difference was so small that it didn't get anywhere near statistical significance. The only thing they found was 60 day mortality seemed to be a little less than the intervention group. There were several other important findings which have implications for heart failure management in any nursing home population. One is that the majority of patients were women with preserved ejection fractures, fractions for whom medication protocols involving you know, ACEs, ARBs, and beta blockers are of unclear relevance. Another is that the majority of readmissions were for something other than heart failure, which is explained by the fact that the majority of patients who got into the study because they were discharged with heart failure didn't have heart failure as their primary diagnosis for the hospitalization. So a legitimate question to ask is whether an intensive protocol for, like this should be limited to people with heart failure as their primary diagnosis for the hospitalization? And if so, whether outcomes would be better? That is the question that was addressed by the second paper, also in this month's JAMDA. It looked at the minority, 19% of study participants who had a primary hospital diagnosis of heart failure. In this very select group, analyses did find that the composite outcome of hospitalizations, ED visits, and mortality was significantly improved in the intensive management group and that this was driven almost entirely by reduction in heart failure-related adverse events. So bottom line on all this, in my opinion, is to confirm what we kind of already know, that disease management protocols work really well for people who primarily have the disease for which the protocol was developed, but that in complex multi-problem patients, too much attention to one disease generates noise rather than improving outcomes. Well, that's fascinating, and it, it's a little disappointing when you do this big, you know, uh, very uh, intensive type intervention, uh, and then have it have results that are so marginal. Uh, I wonder how much of it could be explained by the difference between patients with uh, preserved ejection fraction versus reduced ejection fraction. Uh, and I, I mean, one thing I struggle with is. Uh, we don't want people falling. And sometimes you, you throw in all these, these medications at heart failure patients. Mm -hmm. You don't want them running around with a blood pressure of 90 over 50 and falling and breaking a hip or getting a subdural or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But it does look like it works on that, that population for whom uh, heart failure is their primary diagnosis. And I guess that's, uh, that's something to consider. But uh -huh. so, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I do think that, you know, the, the bigger lesson is that, you know, as you were saying, you have, you know, as a physician in this population, you have to think of a lot of things. And you can't just focus on one thing. And if you do that, um, you're doing, you know, you're really doing a disservice to the, the overall well-being of the patient. And that's, that's, you know, there are these calls to do these very, you know, make sure you follow the protocol, you know, for this or that. And, you know, we know the protocols, but choosing what we follow and what we do is a tough, tough task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, it's cookbook medicine doesn't always work. And that's one nice thing in geriatrics, uh, you know, we're not just looking at 
the heart like a cardiologist would or the lungs like a pulmonologist. And that's definitely a, a blessing of, of being able to give that kind of holistic uh, care. So, so thank you for that. So, okay, our final topic is going to be a favorite of mine, which is uh, appropriate diagnosis and treatment of UTIs in nursing home residents. So, Dr. Brown, please tell me what we learned from this kind of uh, pilot of an EHR integrated decision tool to improve antibiotic prescribing for, for UTIs. Of course, of course. It's a favorite topic of mine, too. I'm often correcting course for my young primary care residents on urinary tract diagnosis. Um, infection diagnostics, excuse me, and particularly around prescribing. Um, but often, you know, when I really try to break it down, the truth of the matter is that it isn't completely straightforward. And many of our older adults, due to a whole host of issues from dementia to um, postmenopausal status to I could go on and on. So this cluster randomized control trial set out to investigate whether an electronic health record integrated decision tool combined with supportive interventions, resulted in more appropriate antibiotic prescribing in nursing home residents with suspected UTI. Physicians collected data at an initial consultation when the UTI was suspected, and again during a 21-day follow-up period in March of 2019 into March of 2020. Overall antibiotic prescribing data at the nursing home level 12 months prior to, and then during the study, was derived from an electronic prescribing system. The study found that the percentage of antibiotic prescriptions for suspected UTI that was appropriate, 295 suspected UTIs were included. Between group difference in appropriate antiprescribing was 13%. So the intervention group was at 62% and the control group was 49% for appropriate, um, appropriate treatment. Secondary outcomes included changes in tr treatment decision, complications, UTI-related hospitalization, and mortality during follow-up. Complications, hospitalizations, and possibly related mortality were rare in both groups. So although appropriate antibiotic prescribing improved in the intervention group, this does not provide quite sufficient evidence for the multidisciplinary intervention. Even with the inclusive result though, the intervention could potentially still be quite effective because a large reduction in the number of antibiotic prescriptions occurred in the intervention group. Yeah, well, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, on the one hand, uh, I guess, you know, before the intervention, it was less than half uh, of the antibiotic prescriptions that were appropriate and they got mm -hmm. it up to 62%. So, I mean, it might be a 13% absolute improvement, but really it's more like a 25% uh, relative improvement, but yes. it's a little disappointing, right? That it's still, you're still only 62% uh, of the, so that means 38% of the prescriptions are inappropriate. Yeah. yeah, that's how I read it too. A little disappointing, but still certainly some improvement. Yeah, and it's certainly, uh, you know, in, in the nursing homes where I go, it's, this is a constant battle because, uh, for one thing, uh, you know, clinicians are still ordering urine studies for people that are a little bit more confused than usual with nothing else, or maybe somebody fell. And it's uh, I even there's some assisted livings that have standing orders for uh, monthly urine dipsticks that I have been unable, you know, in spite of all the uh, evidence I present them, that that's not, that's not good. It's, uh, you know, we're going to be finding a lot of asymptomatic bacteria and maybe causing C. diff or 
right. you know, making somebody bleed because of the coumadin they're on or whatever. Um, and it's, it's really a challenge. So maybe having something embedded in the EHR uh, could be helpful. And one thing our lab has done around here uh, for several years now is when they report out the urine cultures, they say, you know, in big letters, this, this may not be a UTI, don't just treat cultures because, because uh, one organism grew or, or those kinds of things. I don't know if it helps, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Certainly not. I, I completely agree with that. Anything uh, we can do to pre prevent bad prescribing is a win in my book. Yep. Dr. Sloan, anything to add on that? At, at one level, I hesitate to say something, but on the other hand, I, I can't help mentioning that appropriateness is in the eye of the beholder. And in the case of you know, urine infection or suspected urine infection, the appropriateness guidelines are based on expert opinion. And um, whenever you base things on expert opinion, there is some wiggle room. And um, so I don't know if you wanna get it all the way up to 100%, but we certainly know there's a lot of over-prescribing. Over and so therefore, until we get closer to what the experts are recommending, there's still gonna be a lot more over-prescribing. So, yeah, thank you. thanks for that. And I mean, I have to admit, uh, I sometimes just cave when, when a family is just so, so insistent that this is how mom's UTIs look. And, you know, uh, sometimes it's just not worth battling and, you know, give them three days of macrobit or something and, and uh, so hope you haven't done more harm than good. But anyway, um, all righty. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this Jamda on the Go podcast. Uh, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of associate editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful and respected resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond, and in the U.S. and internationally. So please take a look at the March 2022 issue. Dr. Sloan and Brown, thanks again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go, and we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you. And references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda, that's J-A-M-D-A dot com. Till next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.